May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. So it's graduation season. Schools across the country and I suppose around the world are holding their commencement ceremonies sometime about now. Perhaps you've been through one of them recently. Perhaps you have a child or children or grandchildren that are graduating in some way this time of year. And what goes along with commencement ceremonies is commencement speeches, which have in their own way become a kind of media commodity in the last few years, as the internet has made it possible for us to record and transmit and view commencement speeches at schools all over the place. And the more notable of them tend to go around the internet and end up on people's computers that have absolutely no connection to the school or the institution where they were delivered. Um, And the gist of watching all these commencement speeches for me has been to see how the speaker seems tasked with the charge of trying to figure out how to say in some entertaining way to the graduating class that their troubles have only just begun. (laughs) I recall as a high school graduate my dismay and concern when I actually learned the meaning of the word commencement and that it means to begin something. And I was so annoyed because I thought, no, I'm finishing something. And I think that uh, the word commencement as applied to that circumstance is possibly intentional in order to uh, produce a feeling of annoyance among graduating (laughs) seniors. But it's also a lesson. It's a lesson because it's true because the end of school is the beginning of something else. My cousin, who's a physician and who oversees the residency program at the medical school at the University of Buffalo, says when students have graduated with their MD and come to that program, he says they have their MD and now they are ready to learn. In the passage from John's Gospel that we heard this morning, we heard the end of Jesus' commencement speech, which he makes at the Last Supper his own graduation from his earthly ministry. He makes this speech to his disciples. And over the past few weeks, we've been hearing portions of it. And it's archaic and mystical and difficult language. But Jesus is basically saying, what I have done in God's name and for God's purposes, now you also will do. He's sharing God's power with his disciples on the eve of his own death and transformation into his risen form. The disciples don't quite grasp this. Repeatedly in the Gospels, they don't quite grasp what Jesus is teaching them. And the theme of their not grasping usually runs along the lines of Jesus saying, I am giving you godly power, and the disciples saying, why don't you have all the godly power? (laughs) This is revealed in the accompanying story from the book of the Acts of the Apostles, which we heard first in which the disciples are all gathered together now with the risen Jesus, whom they have met again in a new way. And they all gather together, and the disciples say, Lord, is now the time when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? In other words, they are revealing a hope that they had, which is revealed in history and in scripture, that who Jesus was was a returning, conquering king who would kick the Romans out and restore the Davidic monarchy in Jerusalem and make Israel once again 
the location of God's temple and throne. Repeatedly, Jesus denies this mission. He says he's on a different kind of mission and is revealing that God's kingdom looks different from the kingdoms of this world and is not gained by overthrowing worldly power for the sake of more worldly power. God's kingdom looks like Jesus looks, barefoot, wandering, poor, preaching mercy, compassion, healing, and justice in the name of God's kingdom. And the disciples and we continue to wish that he would just be a superhero and fix everything so there would be no more problems. But he's not going to do that. He didn't do it then, and he won't do it now. So it's important for us to notice this pattern laid down in Scripture in which Jesus says he's going to do one thing, and we, his disciples, keep saying, but aren't you going to restore? Isn't now the time when you're going to restore the kingdom? It's like if you were graduating from college and you said to your advisor, is now the time when I can retire and collect my pension? And your advisor would say, no, now is the time for you to get some crappy unpaid internship, start putting in your dues and making your way in the world, and start taking responsibility for the world. Because now you're a grown-up, and it's on you. And that's essentially what Jesus is saying to his disciples. So we see this in our religious tradition, because over the centuries, the church decided to adopt an image of Jesus as a superhero, even though he rejects that in the scriptures. So the church has promulgated a view of Jesus as one who conquers and will someday come again and conquer again for our sake. This is apparently normal for us because we see it reiterated in all of the institutions of our social fabric, our government, our civic institutions, everywhere where people gather and where there's any system of power, what we tend to want to do is elevate one person to the peak of that system, give them all the power, and then assume They're just going to fix everything the way it will be good. Two weeks ago in the New Yorker magazine, uh, there was an article about the Newark public school systems, Newark, New Jersey, and their recent mayor, Cory Booker's efforts to overhaul that system with the help of a number of very wealthy entrepreneurs, including Mark Zuckerberg, the founder and CEO of Facebook. They decided to apply a kind of a business and entrepreneurial model to reforming public education and it didn't go so well for them. And I, if you find the article, I encourage you to read it. It's long and very complicated. But it reveals that transforming human communities is not as simple as finding some superhero with a good idea to come in and fix everything. What Jesus is about is transforming human communities. And it's just not going to work if we make him the superhero. A person who wrote a letter to the New Yorker in the current issue in response to that article, a very astute citizen, revealed uh, that the pattern of wealthy funder, superstar politician, and effort at school reform in Newark, New Jersey, precisely resembled the exact same pattern as it happened in New York City 100 years ago. The more things change, the more they stay the same. And we keep looking for the superhero that's going to solve our problems and make everything better so we won't have to suffer anymore. It's not unreasonable. It's understandable that we would feel this way. Imagine life in Roman-occupied first-century Jewish Palestine. 
it probably wasn't very pleasant to live under Roman occupation. I don't know a whole lot about it. I'm not a historian. But my sense is that if the Romans didn't like you, it didn't go very well for you. And there was not much you could do about it. No wonder people wanted a superhero. No wonder people called on the power of God, like it says in the psalm that we sang this morning, to arise and scatter every enemy. But it never happens that way. Human communities are not transformed that way. And when Jesus comes, he gives us another vision, another view, another way to understand our relationship to God. Jesus has all the power that God has, but he doesn't claim it for himself. He shares it freely with everybody. And he says, now you have it too. But it's not the power to conquer. It's the power to forgive. It's the power to heal. It's the power to make things new. It's the power to connect our suffering to the suffering of others so that we feel compassion and are inspired to work for justice. It is also the power to trust that even though things are not going our way, God is still with us. And even if we can't fix what's wrong, God can and will. Jesus reveals this power to us in his own death. When nailed to the cross, he forgives his killers. As a result, he's resurrected, showing to us that forgiveness is the power that makes new life even in the face of death. This is the way that Jesus invites us to live. It's the power that he gives to his disciples, which they are continually confused about and might rather not have, but occasionally do embrace and recognize and pursue and similarly share with others until God's kingdom spreads and grows and flourishes. So in his commencement speech to his disciples, Jesus says, all the things that God has given me to do, you're going to do. And you're going to do even more than I have done. And what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is to trust that that is actually true. Not to wait for him to come back, staring up at the sky, looking for some kingly conqueror who's finally going to kick the Romans out and make everything better but to go back to where he was, giving good news to the poor, healing the sick and the lame, reconciling enemies, and fighting for the oppressed people of the world. The world we live in also includes a lot of suffering and a lot of places where that ministry is desperately needed. And it's not up to the one person who we identify as having done it before, it's up to each of us. All of us walk in the way of Jesus that leads to the cross, but also to eternal life and to a flourishing world that looks more like God's kingdom every time we make the effort. As disciples of Jesus, listen to the words of the two men in white who stand on the hill in Galilee saying, why are you staring up into heaven? Jesus is not coming that way. He's coming the way he came before, from the margins, from the poor, from the oppressed, out in the world with outcasts and sinners, breaking bread, celebrating God's kingdom, and sharing God's power freely with everyone who asks. Let's go and do the same. What could go wrong? Amen. Amen.